Lord, we sang to you and to each other this morning, Lord, that you loved us first. And what a glorious truth, Lord. You have fixed, you have fastened your love on us. And because of that love, Lord, we can come and hear you. We can come and worship you. We can love each other. We can love the world because of your love, which has been set on us. And we're so grateful for that, Lord. Uh, we need to, to believe that more fully, to experience it more regularly. So, Lord, as we now look to the, the idea of prayer and of fellowship, Lord, we pray that even our prayers, even our, our abiding together with each other would be because you have loved us first. Lord, help us to see and to understand. And, and more importantly, Lord, I pray that you would change our appetites, that you would tune our hearts, that you would change our desires so that we desire the things you do, that we would love the things that you do, and Lord, that we would then act in accordance with our desires. Be with us now, we pray, through the preaching of your word. Speak to us clearly. Help us to see and understand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, again, for the month of November, we're doing these this idea of the patterns of God's grace. How does he bring grace to us? And last week, we introduced the concept and uh, just to kind of recap, because I think it's kind of an important idea to get fixed in our head first, and then we can, we can make sure we do this right, is we identified this, this command that Peter gives us. Peter tells us, grow in grace. It's a command. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It is a command that we grow in grace. And so that raises the question, well, how do we do that? It also raises the question, what do you mean grace? And so last week, I unpacked the idea, grace is God's unmerited favor. And those three words are really important when put together. It's God's favor. It's not so we look good before each other. It's God's favor. It's God's unmerited favor. The things that he's given us to do, these patterns of grace that he's given to us, do not make us more desirable to God. It's unmerited He's given us these things to tune our hearts, to love more like he does so we can grow in his favor. And favor is not just a big tip at a restaurant. Favor is God's delight in us, his positive disposition towards us. So that's what we mean when we say grace is we're talking about growing in God's favor. And how do we do that? Where do we, where do we go to do that? Well, what it looks like to grow in God's favor is being more conformed to the image of Christ. We become more like Jesus because Jesus was constantly in God's favor. And so it's not that we earn our way into salvation. He loved us first. But he's given us these things to cause us to grow and, and to become more like Jesus. So it's more than just working really hard. And it's more than just a bunch of doctrine. To grow in grace means to change inwardly. To have our hearts tuned to what, that, what it is that he's looking for. Um, it, it's it's curbing our passions away from sin and more towards godliness, towards his desires. And the way that he does that is through these patterns, these things that he's given us to practice on a regular basis, to do them over and over again. Not so that we'll be impressed with the doing, but so that our hearts would be tuned. And if you remember last week, I used the illustration of going to your doctor and the doctor telling you, lose some weight and here's what you can do. And you come to your doctor and say, look at my Fitbit. I walked. And the doc says, great, get up on the scales. And you go, I don't want to do that. Look at my Fitbit. And that's what happens when we look at the means of grace, these patterns of grace that God's given us, and go, well, God must really like me because I'm doing this. That's, that's look at my Fitbit. The Fitbit is supposed to be there to help you do the other things. So, so that's what we're doing. And so last week we looked at worship. And what we saw in worship was a regular pattern. God calls us to worship on a weekly basis. We work and then we rest. We work and then we rest. And it's built into our lives routinely over and over again. We looked at the things that he's told us to do in worship. He told us to sing. He commands us to sing. He wrote an entire huge book right in the middle of your Bible called Psalms, which is for singing. So God desires that we sing. And what I mentioned last week was that trains our hearts. That's a good way to memorize something is to sing it. I bet you can right now recall songs that you learned in the 1970s or a jingle from a television commercial you saw when you were a kid. There's a reason they put them to music, and that's, there's a reason God gives us the command to sing, to pray together, to gather together as God's people and to pray, to read the scriptures publicly. So Ron came up and read to us God's word. 
We need to hear these things, and, and we do those on a routine basis, and it trains our hearts. So that was last week. This week, we're going to look at two things which almost sound not linked, but there's a common thread between them, and that's prayer and fellowship. So these are, these are patterns that God gives us. He, he asks us to do these things, and we expect then to grow in grace, to have our hearts tuned to be more in line with him through prayer and through fellowship. Now, I, if I do this right, when we get to the end, you'll see that there is a common thread between the two of them. So let's start with prayer. Um, prayer is kind of a, a hot thing right now. As uh, we all remember last week, there was a shooting at a church in Texas. A man broke in, uh, came into the church, killed 24 people, and wounded just about everybody else in the place. And right after that happened, Speaker of the House, um, uh, Paul Ryan tweeted, he got on Twitter and social media, and he said, reports out of Texas are devastating. The people of Sutherland Springs need our prayers right now. And I thought that was a beautiful and appropriate thing to say in the midst, in the heat of a tragedy. Um, about 15 minutes after, or about 45 minutes after he tweeted that, an actor named Will Wheaton replied to him. And Will said, the murdered victims were in church. If prayer did anything, they'd still be alive. I just broke my, and then he went on and said something really nasty about Speaker Ryan. But he's saying, look, if, if prayer worked, they'd be alive. And so prayer then kind of became this, this issue, this, this football being punted back and forth in social media. Now, I got I to gotta qualify this. Uh, Will Wheaton got on Twitter about an hour later, and he apologized to, quote, unquote, people of faith. He said, I wasn't angry at you. I'm mad at Ryan because he hasn't done anything. And it, it, it was just devastating to think. You use a tragedy like this to further your political agenda. You know, that's just wrong. Just let the prayer be. But it did raise the question of, does prayer work? Why is it if these people were gathered in God's house praying to God that a gunman would come in and kill them? Isn't, isn't that what prayer is supposed to do? Isn't it supposed to protect us? Aren't we supposed to go to God to, to get delivered from those things? The world looks at prayer and they expect it to act like magic. I say these things, and God will give me what I want. If, if, I, if I say this prayer, then I can enact my will in the world, and it's going to be just magic. And so, of course, materials would look at that and go, well, that's dumb. That doesn't work. Look at how bad things are for these people, and they're still praying. Instead of praying, why don't you get out and do something? Now, there was a, a nun who... A while ago, I came across her quote on Twitter, and I have saved it because it needs to be brought up over and over again. Her name was Sister Teresa Aletha or something like that. I've never heard of her before. don't know who she is or where she is. But she said, if your response to a, a catastrophe like this is to support your political agenda one way or the other, politics is your idol. And I thought she was exactly right. Ryan coming out. Speaker Ryan, whether you love him or hate him, coming out and saying we need to pray for the folks in Texas is not a bad thing. He wasn't forwarding any political agenda. But when people look at that, dev that devastating event, that terrible thing that happened, what the materialists, those who don't believe in God actually answering prayers, say is the only way to fix it is gun control. Or the only way to fix it is we need men better mental health uh, care. Or the only way to fix it, is and it's like, that's never going to fix the problem. Prayer is the answer here. This is where it has to start. Now, to, to also to defend Mr. Wheaton a little bit, if all we ever did was say, well, we're just going to pray and we're not going to do anything else, that would be wrong. Nobody, absolutely nobody says that. They get accused of saying it. So the world looks on the church and says, why are you praying? What would you pray for? Why, instead of praying, why don't you get up and do something? And the church says, we're going to pray first, and then we're going to do something. We're going to, we're going to go to God first, and then we'll do something. So it's really disturbing to, to see this kind of stuff, and it comes up in, in social media once in a while. That's the world. That's the people outside of Christ who don't believe in Jesus. What about believers? Surely we have a much easier time with prayer, right? Uh, 
There's a book by Oswald Sanders called Spiritual Leadership, and, and he quotes somebody, and he says, the person says, if I wished to humble anyone, I should question him about his prayers. I know nothing to compare to this topic for its sorrowful self-confessions. So let me just go ahead and step on your toes now, my own as well. How's your prayer life? It, why is it so hard for us? Sanders goes on and he comments on this. He says, but strange paradox. Most of us find it hard to pray. Why do uh, we do not naturally delight in drawing near to God? Sometimes we pay lip service to the delight in the power of prayer. We call it indispensable. We know the scriptures call for it, yet we often fail to pray. And please tell me I'm not alone. Isn't that the case? There's times where you get involved in something so far, and then all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, I never prayed about this. Let me backpedal here and pray and ask God. Why is it that it is such a struggle? Is it just us common Christians, us normal Christians? What about the super saints? Surely they have an easier time of it, right? Well, somebody who you may have heard of, he's not so popular that much anymore, is John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a number of things. Bunyan was arrested in the 1600s for being an unlicensed preacher in England. The crown had decided in order to preach, you had to have license from the crown to preach. The Church of England had to approve you as a preacher. John Bunyan, in the face of this, is a Baptist. He's not an Anglican. And he preached. And so he was arrested. He was thrown in jail for preaching. Now, jails at that time were not comfortable places to be. They were filled with rot and stink. There was one water pump in the middle of the courtyard if you could get to it. Often, if you weren't broad food, you'd starve to death. And Bunyan refused to not preach. All he had to do to get out of jail was shut up, and he refused. He felt it was God's calling on his life to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so that's what he did. He began to preach to other people, other prisoners. There were many other what they were called nonconformists, the ones who wouldn't bow to the churches or to the, uh, the crown's uh, demands on religion. And he would preach to them. There's even a story of him leaning out his prison cell window, preaching to people who would pass by. All he had to do to get out of jail was shut up, stop talking, and we'll let you go. And he wouldn't do it because he felt God's call. He had a daughter. He actually had five children. His oldest daughter, I think it was his oldest, maybe his second oldest, was called Mary. And they referred to her as Blind Mary because she was blind. And she would come and visit her father, and she would bring him a, a jug with soup in it. That would be his food. And they would, they would pray together. They would spend as much time together as they possibly could. He loved his daughter. She died while he was in prison, and he couldn't get out. So surely this is a man who knows prayer, right? A, a saint like this? He even wrote a tract. He wrote some paper, uh, a paper on the issue of prayer. And in it, he says, For as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it so loath to go to God, and when it is with him, so loath to stay with him, that many times I am forced in my prayers first to beg God that he would take mine heart and set it on himself in Christ, and when it is there, that he would keep it there. Nay, many times I know not what to pray for. I am so blind." nor how to pray, I am so ignorant. Only blessed be grace, the Spirit helps our infirmities. So even a super saint like John Bunyan is right there with us, folks. Prayer is hard. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. It's hard for us fallen human beings to do this. So why do we struggle so much with it? Well, first of all, let's ask the question, what is prayer? Um, one of the, the satirical things that people say about prayer is it's you're talking to your invisible friend in the sky. What are we doing when we pray? Um, sometimes I think we Christians can make it much more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, for example, years ago I heard this, this NPR program. A reporter had gone to this church, this, this uh, um, large church, to kind of investigate their world mission kind of thing. And at one point, there's a clip where she's talking to this one lady who's explaining prayer to her. And if I remember right, the story went like something like this. When we pray, what we do is we, we bring up prayers and we puncture the spiritual barrier that's over the world. And we, we puncture through that so that we can bring God's blessings down. It's, it's like, oh, 
it, it was bad theology, but it made for really good radio. Very interesting to read. And I remember hearing that and I thought, I never want to explain prayer to somebody that way. It was the most convoluted thing ever. So then what is prayer? Well, let's, let's ask Jesus, should we? They went to Jesus and they said, Lord, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 says, pray like this. Now, when our master tells us pray like this, I think this is a good place to start. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. That's how we begin prayer. That's what the pattern of prayer is. We are not puncturing the whatever it was above the so-and-so to bring down the whatever. We are talking to our Father in heaven. We pray to him. We call out to our Father. And here's the, the reassuring thing. When we pray, we are addressing not an impersonal force. Have you ever heard people say that they, they speak things into the universe so that the universe will bring things back? The universe doesn't give a rip about you. It would kill you if it had the chance. That's what the universe feels about you. So you can speak all the good things into it you want. It's a big black hole. It's going to suck it up and go nowhere. When Christians pray, our Savior, our Master has told us, you address God in heaven as Father. Our Father. So the first thing we have to do is we have to keep in mind our prayers are going to somebody who cares intimately. God is a person. Now, he's not a human being, but he is a person. He has personality. He has will. He has desires. He has intelligence. He has relationship. He is a person. So we are not speaking into a void and hoping something nice bounces back. We're speaking to a person. As a matter of fact, the most powerful person in the entire universe is the person that you're addressing. And Jesus has told you to talk to this person as father. To say, Father, this is what I want. This is what I'm asking. But notice he says, our father. Now, I have always thought of our father as, well, he's not just exclusive to me, he's all of us. And that's true. And I think that's part of the reflection here is when we say our father, it's flat, it's horizontal. All the people that he saved, he's drawn together. But have you ever thought of it this way? Jesus said, our. So he's first and foremost, Jesus' father. And Jesus invites us into that relationship because he's telling us now, call him our. Not just my father, but our father, the two of us. Jesus has invited us into a relationship with God where he treats us as his children. And, and this is not just something stranded in, in the Lord's Prayer. John 20, 17, this is what Jesus says. This is at, right after his resurrection. Mary meets him in the tomb, and Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So the Savior who invites us into a relationship with God as father and child now ascends to the Father and stands there representing us. That's what we are doing in prayer. So when we pray, we are calling out to God, our Father. Now, imagine if you went, as, as a children, this may be hard for some of us, I know it's hard for me. Imagine you're a little kid in your mom's kitchen. And you come in and you say, Mom, I want five Kit Kats. Probably a legitimate desire that I have, I really like Kit Kats. Mom is going to look at me and go, dinner is in three minutes, you're not getting five Kit Kats. And I would be really miffed for about 10 minutes because I didn't get my Kit Kats. But she had something much better, pot roast and vegetables. I mean, that that's beats Kit Kats anytime. It's much more nutritious. But I'm still smoldering because I, I want the Kit Kats. When we go to God and we ask God, our Father, Lord, would you give me, do we always get a yes answer? No, because we don't know how to pray. I agree with Bunyan. I don't know how to pray. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. He intercedes for us. So we go to God and we say, Lord, I want. And God's answer is, I know, what, I know what you need. I got something better. So one of the things that can be hard for us in prayer is we don't always get the answer we want. I was praying about this and it didn't happen. 
does prayer work? You would never say that. We're all too sophisticated to ever ask that question. But that can kind of ring in the back of your head. Is this worth it? I mean, what's going on here? I've been crying out for this thing for years, and God's not answering me. Well, he's your father. Is your father going to hand you, when you, Jesus said this, if you go to your father and say, Lord, I, I would like an egg, is he going to hand you a scorpion? Go, here, deal with that. If you ask for a loaf of bread, is he going to toss you a snake? So God knows what it is that we want. And so when we come to prayer, we have to be in this relationship where we say, Lord, you are the ultimate wisdom in all of the universe. You know where every molecule, every atom, every subatomic particle is at any given time. Clearly, you know what's best. Here's, my, here's what I'm asking. And understand that his relationship to you is not your bother. Go away. But he's a father who loves you. So we call God our father in prayer. We come to him in that way. And so sometimes our father doesn't answer the way we think we should. You know, another thing that can be difficult is God has what we call divine attributes. God is not divine attributes. God just is. It's called the simplicity of God. He just is who he is. For us, we have to divide him up into pieces and understand this aspect of him and this aspect. One of the divine attributes is invisibility. You can't see him. You, he's a spirit. You can't see him on a regular basis. So when our non-believing friends talk, say that you're talking to your invisible friend in the sky, they're not too far off. He is invisible. He is our friend. But it's not make-believe. I, I used to have a guitar, and I had make-believe friends who lived inside my guitar. And I, never, I still don't know how to play guitar, so you can see how this relationship went. One day I left the guitar sitting in the living room. My sister ran through the living room, put her foot right through the guitar, and my response was, you killed my friends. Because <laughs> I thought they lived in the guitar. So this idea of, of saying to somebody um, that uh, you're, you're speaking to your invisible friend, we are speaking to our invisible friend. But he's not make-believe, and he's not in our head. God is invisible. And so sometimes it can feel like when we're praying, I'm just talking to myself. There's nobody here. We don't hear God in the background going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you get when you talk to a friend on the phone or, or speak to somebody face-to-face -face, is you get audible feedback. We get visual feedback from, oh, I lost him at this point. Look, they're looking at the sky now. Oh, now they're back. You get these feedbacks as you have this communication event with this person. We don't get that with God. And that's not a bad thing. It's not wrong. It's just the way it is. And so I think sometimes our prayers are difficult because we feel like we're just talking to ourselves. And so that's, that's hard to do. It's, it's really a struggle because God is invisible. But if we're talking about God's attributes, don't forget some of his other ones, right? He's our father. But there's two primary attributes that the Bible talk about God. He is holy. And we sang it this morning. He is love. So God is holy. What do we mean by holy? Well, the underlying idea of God's holiness is that he is distinct. He is set apart. He is other. So as we're praying to him, we're not praying like we're talking to our spouse. We're praying to somebody who is holy, other. So the communication is going to be different. It's going to look a little different than we're used to. But the other primary attribute of God is God is love. Love is not God, but God is love. And what it means is at his root, at his base, what he is, is he is a lover. He desires, he wants to be with us. So when we pray, though we may not get the feedback we're used to on a personal level, we have to keep these two things in mind. God is utterly other, and he is love. And he is father. And, and the, the wild thing is to think God didn't start being father at some point, right? Jesus is his eternally begotten son. There has never been a point throughout all of eternity past that God was not father. So when Jesus invites you into that relationship, it's not a new thing. It's based on, like we sang this morning, God first loved us. So this is why he commands us. He tells us, come and pray to me. So we pray, and God hears us. And he's not cranky and tired and, and not wanting to answer. 
He's attentive. He loves, he delights in the prayers of his saints. And he will answer the way he, he will answer. But he's listening and he's with us. So that's what prayer is, is we come to him with our petitions. We come to him with our requests. And we lay them at his feet and we trust that his wisdom will bring them about in the perfect, the absolutely perfect, the best way possible. Because we trust him. Because he's our father. Because he's love. Because he's utterly holy. So this is what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6. Paul tells us, okay, this is how you apply prayer. He says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Not your demands, not your final, you know, final offer on this relationship, God. We go to him and we let our requests be known to him. Lord, this is what I'm asking. And that's our relationship, is we're going to our Father and we're making requests. And he says to us, don't be anxious. Okay, got that checked off. I'm not anxious now. Actually, what he's doing is he's painting here a picture of what is anxiety and what is the opposite of anxiety. So if you are anxious, how do you be not anxious? Now, there is a, there is a, a, um, a problem in, some people have where they are just built anxious. It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. It is, is some psychological problem that they have. It's clinical anxiety. That's not what we're talking about. That's a different category. What we're talking about here is day-to-day, on a regular basis, anxiety. Um, Tim Keller once said that anxiety, uh, daily anxiety, the regular, not the clinical kind, regular anxiety is telling God on a regular basis, I don't think you have my best interests in mind. I don't think I can trust you to do the right thing for me, and that's why I'm anxious. So if that's that, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be telling God he doesn't have our best interests in mind. We want to see him as our father who loves us and wants our best. So how do we fight anxiety? According to Paul, we let our requests be made known. We tell him what we want. So Jesus is teaching on prayer in Matthew 6, 31. He says, therefore, don't be anxious. Okay, got it. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? So those are just the common daily things. How am I going to make it through today? Don't be anxious about that. He says, for the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father, there he is again. Our father is the response here, knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In the measure, in the proportion that you need. It's hard for us to conceive of that because in America we're so rich and we're so comfortable that it's hard for us to conceive of on a daily basis crying out to God, Lord, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? But we do. We still have anxiety. Anybody here totally anxiety-free? Never been anxious a day in your life? You're a liar. We all face anxiety, even in a a comfortable situation like this. So Jesus is talking to all of us. He says, don't be anxious, but trust your father. He cares for you. A good father does. The one verse that really kind of saved my life was 1 Peter 5. When I was extraordinarily anxious one night, I thought I was going to lose my job. Peter advises us this way. He says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice what he doesn't say there. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and be rid of anxiety. Peter says you're going to have anxieties. Humble yourself under his hand and cast those. Take those anxieties that you naturally have and cast them on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He wants to help you. So that anxiety, when it comes up, is something that we are supposed to throw on God. He he wants it that way. He doesn't say, don't ever be anxious or I'm never going to talk to you again. That's a loving father. So then, again, why doesn't prayer work? Um, In John 14, 13, Jesus himself said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So why is it, Lord, that I've been praying for this particular thing and it hasn't happened yet? Now, the faulty answer is, well, you just don't have enough faith. I think there's more to it than that. There's a bigger pattern here, and this is kind of where it begins to tie in with the patterns of grace. Remember when I said we, we follow these patterns of grace, what changes within us? Our heart, our desire. The things that we long for change as we follow in God's patterns, as we walk with him through these different things. So if our heart is being tuned more and more to be the image of Christ, to become more Christ-like, doesn't it make sense then if we pray according to our desires that he would answer them? Because we're becoming more conformed. He's not going to answer prayers for sinful things. If you pray, God, give me better pornography, I guarantee he's not going to answer that prayer. That's not going to happen. But if you pray, Lord, lead me in holiness, that's something he's going to delight to answer. He's going to follow after that. That's being more in tune with his heart, following more closely after him. So that's why Jesus would say, if you pray anything in my name, I'll give it to you. As you pray in tune with what I'm planned, what I want, what I desire for you, that's how it's going to come. So growing in grace, being conformed to Christ, means that our prayer life will be changed. It, it won't necessarily be any easier. We are still going to struggle, but at least it will be changed, and we'll begin to see more and more of what's going on. So the problem isn't that God doesn't do what we want. The problem is what we want isn't always the best. And that, that's not just something I made up. James chapter 4, right at the beginning, James says, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. Passions, not your doctrine. Your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. So isn't that what, what Paul is saying to us here? Is, is as, or Jesus tells us, as you pray in my name. If you pray wrongly, if you pray to, pray to feed your passions, that's not in Jesus' name. That's at odds with him. Why are you discontent? Why are you so grumpy? Why are you so grouchy all the time? Because your heart is not in line with who God is. As we go through these patterns, as we walk with God through these things, he's training our heart so that our prayers become much more effectual. We're more and more in agreement with him. And I've got to throw in another Keller quote on this. Tim Keller wrote a book on prayer, so this is my last Keller quote, I promise. He says, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he has given. If we knew everything that God knew, we would ask, not at odds with God, but completely in agreement with God. Lord, that is exactly right. That's exactly where to go. So hopefully we're, this, this idea of what prayer is and, and why it's hard, hopefully is building some confidence in us that we will fight for prayer. Struggle through it, brothers and sisters. It ain't easy. But most good things aren't easy. So what's a good tip for prayer? Well, hey, it's 500th anniversary of the uh, Reformation. Got to go to Luther on this. Luther had a barber. I can't remember the gentleman's name. His barber was not a perfect person. His barber, when uh, he got drunk one time and killed his son-in-law at the dinner table. So not the perfect person at all. But Luther went to the authorities instead of, and said, instead of executing him, can, can you just exile him? And so the man was exiled for the murder of his son-in-law. And he carried with him a letter from Martin Luther. And the man had gone to Luther and said, teach me how to pray. I, I really struggle with prayer. And so this murderer, who's kicked out of that province of Germany, carries with him this great letter on how to pray. Luther would pray for three hours a day. And one gentleman overheard him praying. 
and said it was the most amazing thing because it was the surety of a child coming to their father, the humility of a, a, a sinner before his holy God was mixed in, in Luther's prayers. So Luther had many faults. He was not perfect by any way, but he could pray. So let's listen to what he had to say. In his letter to his barber, he gives some instruction. He says, start with scripture. So Luther, what he would do is he would start by going through the Ten Commandments. And as he would do it is he'd read a commandment and then he would meditate on it. He would sit and think through it. And what I found after I read this, I went, oh my gosh, I'm doing the same thing. I've been doing the same thing for years. I never knew. Is what I do with my prayers in the morning, the first thing I sit down and I grab my Bible and I pray, Lord, open my eyes. Help me see Jesus in this. Let me hear what you have to say from, from your word to me. And then I read some scripture. And then when I'm done, I close my Bible and I sit and I think about it and I turn it into prayer. So here's the steps Luther gives for doing that. And I think it's helpful. He says, first of all, you read something and you meditate on it. The first thing you look for is an instruction. So for example, I recently finished the book of Ruth. And as I, I read it all in one shot, it's a short book. Don't be impressed. So I read, I read Ruth, and after I was finished, I closed the Bible and I started thinking, Lord, what are you saying through Ruth? What's going on here? So if we follow Luther's pattern, we look for instruction. What is God telling us through the story of Ruth? And I thought, well, Boaz is really the hero of this story, isn't he? he he's the good guy. And what he did is he not only welcomed the stranger, the Moabitess, she's referred to as Ruth the Moabitess a couple of times. He didn't just welcome her. He provided for her. He gave her grain. He let her glean among the reapers. Gleaning, you usually go around the edge of the thing and look for anything that fall in the field after the reaping is done. He had her go right up with the reapers and grab grain as they're going. So he not only welcomed her, he, he provided for her. He protected her. He said, you stay with the, the maidens and I'll instruct the young men not to bother you. And, and then later when she talks to Naomi, she's like, oh, you better be careful because some of the guys out there can get kind of rough. And she's, no, Boaz is protecting me. So Boaz, he, he, provide, he welcomed her, he provided for her, he protected her. And then finally, when he realizes what's going on, he finds the nearest kinsman redeemer and says, look, dude, you can redeem her. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem the property. Yeah, but you got to take the wife. Oh, forget it. I'll take her. He married her. That, that's kind of the instruction here is how do we respond to those who are outside? How do we respond to people who are, who are seeking our help? Look at Boaz. He's this, this, this hero. The next thing that Luther said is we should use thanksgiving. We should approach this with thanksgiving. So as you've read your scripture, now you're meditating on it. You're thinking through it. You see what the instructions are. You thank God. And for Ruth, I, I just kind of fell into praise that God welcomed us as foreigners. We were aliens. We were in desperate straits. And God welcomed us in. Not only did he welcome us in, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, went out and, and bought us at a cost to redeem us, to save us. And so it just stirred this moment of thanksgiving in my heart to think, I'm only saved because of that, because Jesus has done this. He's brought me into the covenant. Next thing Luther says is confession. So now you've thought about what it says, what the instructions are. You've been thankful for it. And now you confess where you fall short. So I start thinking, why am I sometimes suspicious of those who are not like me? Why is sometimes my first response to be distance? Why can't I be as generous as Boaz was? Would I be as trusting and as adventurous as Ruth? Why am I a whiner like Naomi? And so I go to confession and say, Lord, I... I Sometimes when you give me something and I don't like it, I'm, I say, call me Mara, because God has made me bitter. And then finally, you bring it all into prayer. How do you carry this to your Lord and ask him? Lord, bring many foreigners into your covenant. Lead many to confess, you shall be my people, or your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. Lead me from being Mara to Naomi, and may your kingdom come. Because don't forget, Ruth gave birth to Obed, who gave birth to Jesse, who gave birth to David, who gave birth to Christ. So that's one way you can pray, is start with the scriptures. Bathe your head in the scriptures. Think carefully through the scriptures and ask, 
these questions of them. It's not a bad idea to go to God's word first, is it? I mean, it sounds like a good idea. If you want to pray in accordance with his will, pray his word. That's, that's a good place to be. So prayer's hard. You got to fight for it. You got to wrestle yourself through it. Now, what I had um, Ron read at the beginning, I want to show how this kind of fits in, is, is Paul gives instruction to uh, Timothy in Ephesus, and he tells him, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for only people you like. No, for all people, um, including this king's, and those in authority who, are, who could you know, turn against you at any moment, you need to be praying for them. Why? He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is not praying, this king who's given me a hard time, I pray that he drops dead tomorrow. That's not what he had in mind. What he's saying is, Lord, would you lead that king to lead well? These, these, these administrators that are over us, Lord, would you cause them to be effective? Why? So that we can lead quiet and peaceful lives. Now, he's not saying, make me comfortable. There's, there's, if you read the rest of what Christian life is about, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be difficult. But your prayers, asking for the prayers of these folks, means that you will lead a quiet and dignified life, godly. The, the governor cannot make you less godly, but not praying for him can make you less godly. So that's where he goes with that. And he says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's pleasing in the, in the uh, sight of God, our Savior. And isn't that what it means to grow in grace, to be more in line, to be more of God's favor upon you? That's exactly what he's saying. As you pray for these things, you grow in God's favor. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So if you've ever heard somebody say that they pray to the saints, uh, the, the defense of that I've heard is, well, don't you ask your friends to pray for you? Well, yeah, I ask my friends to pray for me all the time. Well, then why wouldn't you want a saint to pray for you? They're already in heaven. But what that misses is, I'm not going to my friends and say, please pray for me, and then I don't pray. I don't think that I have prayed because I've asked my friends to pray for me. When I ask my friends to pray for me, I'm saying, would you join me in talking to our one mediator, the one between us and God? So praying to a dead person is a bad idea to begin with, but they aren't a mediator between you and God. There is one, that's Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Your friends haven't given themselves for you. Saint, whoever he is, hasn't given himself for you. Jesus, your mediator, has given himself for you. And then look where he leads with this. Look at where this goes. He says, for this I... Um, I'm sorry, starting in verse 8. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but that which is proper for women who profess godliness. Good works. So this is that means of grace. This is that, that pattern of grace that God brings into your life. Prayer starts with intercession for those in power. And it leads to a lack of quarreling, a lack of vanity, and into good works. That's the pattern that we're talking about. That's why you pray on a regular basis is because it leads to those good works. So let's transition now real quick to fellowship. That's the other half of this. When we talk about fellowship, what do we mean? We've heard the term. There's even a movie out, Fellowship of the Something or Other, the Ring or something has a ring to it. What do we mean by fellowship? What we, when we talk about fellowship, there's a specific biblical understanding of it. And I think a good illustration is Acts 2.42. This is after the great sermon that Peter preached on, on Pentecost where 3,000 people came to be baptized. Um, after that, Luke explains what happened. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. 
So these people now are believers, and they've come together to do these things. So fellowship is not the apostles' teaching. It's not preaching. Fellowship is not the breaking of bread. It's not eating together. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's just eating together. Fellowship is not prayers. So what is it? Well, fellowship is this idea of communal life, associating together, living together. Um, there's a, a, a secular writer named Yuval Levin who has written a book called The Fractured Republic, which I haven't read, but it's on my list. Um, I've heard him a number of times speak, and I think he's on to something really helpful here. So this is not a, a religious writer talking about religious association, but uh, Yuval has got something. He's hit some truth here. So he's asked, what do you think that, uh, he talks about institutions. He says, what is an institution? He says, I think an institution is a form of associational living. And in that list, when he talks about institutions, he talks about church. We come together like that. So why is coming together as a fellowship in associational living, living together, why is that a pattern of God's grace? How does that train us? Well, Levin goes on to say, by the way, he's a, uh, he's a writer. He's written some books. He is in a think tank. Don't discount him just because of that. Think tanks. And I always think of them as, as a tank that somebody's inside of in a hollow chamber, but that's not what that is, apparently. Um, he's an editor for a quarterly journal, and, um, and he, he gives some, some talks once in a while. This is how he explains the need for uh, an institution for associational life. He says, people are fallen. People enter the world needing to be made better before they can be made free. That's what our institutions do. Institutions turn us into human beings who are capable of being free men and women. Who will choose to do the right thing, generally speaking, and so can be left free to choose and don't have to be coerced into being responsible? So what Levin says is, is our institutions, the military, Boy Scouts, uh, labor unions, all of these different things, churches, are supposed to form us. Have you ever thought of an institution that way? As forming you? That's interesting that we, together, we would come together around this central purpose and it would form us into that kind of a person. And, and Levin is talking about political issues here. People are, need to be made right so they can be made free. But you could apply that in a broader sense. We need to be made right. We need to have our hearts tuned to love what God loves so that we may be free, as in not a slave to sin, but free to love and to worship God. So his idea at the root is associations are formative. They make us into somebody we're not. Hopefully, if they're the right kind of association, they make us into better people. And that's why we come together as believers in Jesus Christ and we worship together, but we don't just meet Sunday and then never see each other anymore. We're getting together often. We're bumping into each other on a regular basis and we're doing it under the guise, under the banner of Jesus Christ. That's Christian fellowship so that we can hold each other accountable. So if we see sin in another person's life because we see them outside of Sunday morning, because let's admit, we all put on our best on Sunday morning, right? How are you this week? Oh, great. You know, you only got a couple minutes together. But if we bump to, into each other throughout our week in our lives, we can see a little more clearly what's going on. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? You need to knock this off. You need to start doing this. And we wind up forming each other. We wind up building us, each other up into the image of Christ. That's, that's the idea. So prayer is, is, um, is formative in that it conditions us to understand who God is. But fellowship, our, our union together, is formative as well. And the common thread that goes between them is we're both dealing with people. When we pray, we need to remember we're praying to a person, a person who cares, a person who hears, a person who sees and understands. But God built us in a very specific way, didn't he? It is not good that man should be alone. So what did he put before man? Every animal on the face of the earth, and Adam went, nope, none of them. So he built another face and put it before Adam. He made Eve, and that's when Adam went, ah, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is the counterpart I need. God gives us each other because we need a physical face in front of us, as well as a heavenly father. 
So that's the theme that I think ties these two together is it's also why we pray for each other is we all need each other. We need to stir each other up to good works, to love. That's what Hebrews says is don't neglect meeting each other together. Don't, don't neglect that. There's a benefit in it. You stir each other up to love and to good works. So being a, com- a community of these imperfect people, we come together, we bump into each other, we, we agree, we disagree, we grind on each other, we, we bless each other. It's a mess, and it's a beautiful mess because Jesus has brought us all together. We're all part of a body. Each one has a function. Each one has a role. So if I, I just want to plug real quick. Third Thursday at, at 7 o'clock, 6.30, we meet in the hallway across, or across the hallway in the coffee room, and we pray. And it may not be important. It may not be possible for you to be physically present. But communal prayer does something. When we pray together, you hear somebody else pray for something, and that launches you into another trajectory that you hadn't even considered. Or somebody prays for something so big, you go, oh my gosh, I would never pray like that. Let me try it. Let me see if I can trust God on something this big. And you pray for something big. It's it's good to pray alone, and you should pray alone, but it's also good to pray together because we are a community, and it stirs us up. It increases our faith to hear how other people pray, to hear how God answers other prayers. So that's why I put prayer and and fellowship together, is we need to pray separately, we need to pray together. We need to pray to our Heavenly Father who we can't see, and with each other who we can. And let's see if that doesn't begin to pattern your heart to desire more of a relationship with God, because you see Him as real, living, and active even when he's not as active in your life as you would like, he may be more active in somebody else's. So that's the pattern of God's grace in in prayer and in fellowship, is it can lead us together to something greater, to trust him even more than we had before. Let's close in prayer. Lord, with with Paul, or with uh, John Bunyan, we pray together. Lord, we don't know how to pray. And Lord, we confess with so many other folks, we don't want to pray. So Lord, would you lead us? Would you show us how to pray? Encourage us by hearing the prayers of others, by hearing the prayers of other saints. Would you encourage us to pray? Lord, would you build in our hearts a trust for you, even though we can't see you? Even though we don't hear your audible feedback when we pray, Lord, would you build our trust? And Lord, would you use the faces that you've surrounded us with to do that? May we, as your people, be praying for each other, for those in authority over us, for those who don't know you yet, because we trust, Father, that you're good. We ask these things in Christ's name, our big brother, our advocate, the only mediator between us and you, and our Savior. Amen.